the, 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 the new paragraph on the page, which is um, more than halfway down the page. And uh, I think that the, uh, the paragraph that is in front of us right now on page 48 is a final paragraph in, in a lot of uh, discussions and details that we've been dealing with up to this point. Uh, so then rather than to rely on my way of wrapping up and making a review of what we've learned over the last few weeks, <laughs> what we'll do is we'll see the paragraph inside and uh, in my classical style I'll most probably have something to say about it. Um, let's see the paragraph. Amnam. Over the, the weeks, we've been talking about the fact that one of the significant or the most significant element that we are to begin realizing and appreciating about God is God's exclusiveness, His uniqueness, His oneness. Now this has been a concept w which we've developed over many weeks and what Rav Meshachayim Litzata is discussing here now is the fact <coughs> that part of the, uh, the need for man to understand God's exclusiveness and the need for man to understand God's oneness reveals itself in the fact that God is committed to showing that exclusiveness to man. It's not as if God hides away someplace and man has to search him out, but God tailor-makes many events of history, either by doing or by not doing, to inevitably show man God's exclusiveness, God's oneness. And therefore, Rav Meshachayim Litzata says, God does the following thing. Shekal Hazman Shehurotza all of the amount of time historically that God wants God allows the world to, to um, roar forward with all of the circumstances of time and this is a period of time where you'll excuse the expression in English, it seems as if all hell is breaking loose in the world. It's something pretty close to our situation today. <laughs> and in this period of time, God does not intervene or prevent any kind of a choice that man would like to make from being made which is in his ability to do. And this means that even if, if the people that walk the face of the earth reach virtually the lowest possible spiritual levels imaginable, God does not intervene. Now, Rav Meshachayim Latzata is explaining something, and I'll tell it to you first outside, and then we'll get a better appreciation of it inside. One of the most difficult things for the human being that's attempting a connection to God, one of the most difficult things is when he looks at a world which supposedly God is connected to, 
supposedly God is knowledgeable of everything that's going on in this world and involved in everything that's going on in this world and then looks at the world and sees that there are all kinds of injustices and crimes and negative things and evil things and spiritual plummeting of, of the levels of humanity and so on and so forth and nothing's, nothing's happening. Camel garnished. There's, there's, no, there's no check system. There's nobody intervening. There's nobody changing. There's nobody doing anything of the, uh, to, to change that situation. And this is something which is very, very disturbing. Those of you that have been here since the beginning know that this was one of the opening questions that the neshama, that the soul asked, the seichel, the intellect. If you subscribe to a concept of, of, uh, of God knowing and God being capable and God having the ability to intervene and at the same time believing in God's goodness, how can we see a world that seems to be running free, loose, wild, crazy, in people doing whatever they want to do and falling to who knows what levels in the process, and there's no intervention. There's no intervention on anybody's part. Where is that God that we speak of? And there's no doubt that this is a tremendous challenge. And certainly where the evil touches us or the negativity touches us directly, then we certainly have the question because then we have a personal stake involved and it hurts us even more. And it touches everybody in some way, either personally or peripherally, but it touches everybody and we're all observers to what's going on and touched in different ways. And this is a major question. What Rav Moshechaim says is the following thing, and this is an idea which we've been formulating over the weeks. Rav Moshechaim says, that the fact that we don't see God's intervention doesn't mean that the God doesn't know what's going on, number one. Number two, that there isn't some ultimate plan that needs a period of time in order to reveal itself. In other words, God will stand back and will let man make the choices that he wants to make, develop the things that he wants to, to develop, and then, only after man has tried every option and every mishigas and everything, then God will intervene and show, either by the selected processes of the person himself or by God's direct intervention, that all of this doesn't come anywhere close to what God has suggested as being a meaningful lifestyle. And sometimes that's the only way that we can understand the uniqueness of God's advice, the exclusiveness of His existence, by allowing every form of existence to exist, every choice to be played out, every possibility to be exercised. And then when everything comes out, and God, so to speak, lets the rope loose and lets the person do with it what He wants, that becomes a process by which the world becomes riper in understanding and appreciating God. When you're starting off life at the very beginning, it's sometimes very, very difficult to believe in a specific path. I want to find my own path. I want to experiment. I want to explore. Don't put me into this, this restricted path where I can't look to the right and I can't look to the left. And this is the way to do it. And this is the only way to do it. And this is the only way you're going to be happy. I'm not willing to deal with that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of restriction. I don't want it. I want to be able to find my own way. I mean, people have come to me in the office and, Rabbi, Rabbi, I'm very, very religious. In my heart, I really feel God. I talk to Him. He occasionally talks to me. But don't tell me what to do. 
Don't tell me what to do. Don't give me a direction. The notion of a specific direction, a specific path, do's, don'ts, this is all an insult to me. I have to be able to grope and find my own way. And this is a very normal feeling. It's a very natural feeling that people have. And God is very sensitive to that feeling. God understands that feeling. And when that feeling permeates a person's being, sometimes God says, I'm going to stand back and I will not insist and I will not intervene and I will let you do exactly what you want to do. But it's not as if God says to the person, to heck with you, you don't want to listen, so I give up on you and go your merry way. God standing back itself is a personification of a learning process. Okay, you're stubborn, you don't want to take things the way I'm saying them, you want to experiment, you want to fool around with it, you want to try something else out, go right ahead. But that can sometimes be a very painful way of learning. Right? But if man is stubborn and that's the way that man wants to learn, that ultimately remains the only way that he can learn. And therefore God stands back and says, go through your process. Go through that go through that process. Now this is described very aptly in Shira Shiram, in the Song of Songs. Uh, could you just mention to the people that just walked in that there are a couple of benches. If you go out that door and to the right, there are a couple of benches on the porch. In Shira Shirim, <coughs> in Shira Shirim, there is a very apt description of this. In the Shira Shirim, the Song of Songs is a dialogue between God and man. It's a dialogue between God and man, and man and God. Uh, a dialogue which expresses the love of God for his people in spite of the fact that he exiled them, the love of the Jewish people for God in spite that they were exiled. And there's a running dialogue, and we're trying to persuade God to take us out of exile, to take us out of this situation of spiritual alienation. We're trying to convince God of this, and at the same time, God is trying to explain to us that he really stands at a very healthy point with us and that he has to control his tremendous love for us and stand back and let us go through a learning process. So it's, and God tries to tell us in many different ways that it is only because he has such tremendous love for us that he has to contain himself and not automatically give in to our requests in order that we should go through a meaningful learning process and learn through our particular paths that we believe are the paths. Now, God explains or God describes his relationship in this period of time when he says, when he says to the people, you're on your own. You want to find your way through your own ways, through your own paths, that's fine with me. So the way that this is described in the Song of Songs is that God is as if he is behind a wall, which seemingly we cannot see him, but that there are cracks in the wall and God is looking through the cracks. This is the way it's described in Shir Hashir. Now I'm not saying it as beautifully as Shlomo Melech said it in Shir Hashir, but the, no the idea or the notion that's behind it is that God is pulling back, God is not quote-unquote intimately involved in a, in, in a direct intervention but his holding back itself is a connection. The fact that God stands back and says that I will let you go on the trip of your own path until you find the value of what I'm saying, that itself is a connection. It's not as if, go your merry way, call me when you're ready. It, that's not what it is. 
In other words, God is saying, I'm still connected to you. I still want you to learn. I still want you to know. Right? But I have to take a back seat. I have to stand in the background. I will watch. I will see what's going on. God forbid if it comes to the point that you utterly and utterly destroy the world or you're standing a, a moment before that, then I'm going to have to obviously come in and straighten out the score. But anything short of the total destruction of the world, God says, I would prefer that you find your way through your choices, through the paths that you take. I would really prefer that you take take some of my advice on trust and experiment with it and experience it and see the wisdom of it through experimentation. But if you're not willing to do it, you want that to leave Judaism and that particular path as your last option and you feel that it's the bottom of the totem pole and you want to try other things first, God stands back. Try everything. How many times, and I think I've told this to you how many times, that I have people that have come to me and said, Rabbi, I'm here looking into Judaism. Why are you looking into Judaism? Well, it's very simple, Rabbi. I tried everything else. So as a last resort, I'm going to try Judaism. Why not? Somebody even told me that I was born Jewish and I have roots as a Jew. So you know, it's logical that before I go, you know, give up on life altogether, that I might as well try Judaism. But usually we always leave it for the last resort. In any case, <coughs> so what Rav Moshe Chaim Litzanta is pointing out is that God stands back and lets a lot of things happen. And in, when God lets those things, He allows those things to happen. That's the correct way of saying it. He allows those things to happen. It creates a tremendous amount of confusion because it appears to us as a disassociated God, an uninvolved God. While in fact, Rav Moshe Chaim Litzata says it's not an uninvolved God, but it is a God that has selected a, a hidden role or a, set, or a backseat role and is allowing the options and the choices of man play themselves out. There will come a moment in time, Rav Moshe Chaim Litzata says, that if one will learn and will not be stubborn to the messages, fine. If man will not learn and will want to refuse the messages and the, the communications that are loud and clear, so then God promises that he's not going to let it get to the point of, of total destruction. And that's what he's, where Moshe Chaim Litzat is pointing out. Now let's see this inside. I'm backtracking one line. And even if man reaches the very, very lowest levels of existence, right, God knows about it, and it's part of the learning pattern. It's part of the learning pattern. But don't think for a moment that because of this, the world is doomed to its destruction. Because after everything is said and done, God still remains in control. He is still in control. It is a controlled lack of intervention. It's not a lack of intervention that comes out of the fact that he can't intervene. It's an intervention that is uh, the lack of intervention which is a purposefully timed lack of intervention. So even in the moments when he's not inter intervening, he's also in control. But he's controlling the lack of intervention. He's holding back his intervention. God made it. And he tolerates a tremendous amount of nonsense. And he creates a lot of... And part of the program of the world is that many of the negative choices are programmed to hurt man. And that's also part of God's program. 
because God puts a self-destruct system in the negative choices in and of them, themselves, which is a whole discussion. And God has all of those abilities and He also has the ability to heal after that process. And there is no other besides God. But that recognition that no matter what happens, God is still in control and God still has the strength of getting rid of every piece of nonsense, every power, every culture, every lifestyle that is negative to true human fulfillment, this is something that reveals itself from the allowance of everything to come into existence and then God saying, but it all still doesn't compare to me. It all still doesn't compare to the true path, to the meaningful path. And behold, this is a tremendous principle, a cornerstone of, of the Jewish people's belief. And with this attitude, the heart of the Jew does not become soft or, or full of fear. Not from the length of the exile, and not even from its bitterness. The exact opposite. Here, Shahakarish Barhu, God gave permission, and He allowed the negative to do everything that it does. It's not a free floating force, an independent force of God. God has every, is, in, is, understands all the parts of what's going on, and is in a sense in control of all of them. In virtue, by virtue of the fact that at any moment in time he can intervene or decide not to intervene, depending upon what he feels is the most important way that we will come to learn. And the end of it all is, and this is a very profound thing, the more that the negative has burdened man to tolerate a lot of negative stuff, to that degree can So so too, in exact measure, will we be awestruck by the tremendous exclusiveness of God when He does reveal Himself, when He does finally intervene, and when He does make the point. So what Ramesh Chaim Litzat is saying is the following. Ramesh Chaim Litzat is saying that by allowing the negative situations to develop through the choices of man to even to their greatest extremes, there is a benefit to that as well. What is the benefit to that? Because when you let it reach its virtual extreme and then in its heightened state, there is also a power that can control it and overcome it and conquer it and put it back in its proper place. This teaches me a dimension of God that would otherwise not be taught. In other words, if every time a person would begin entertaining, developing some kind of a negative thing, he would immediately be slapped in the face by God. You can't do that. And he never gets to first base in developing anything negative. So our perception of God would be that God is very, he's a prima donna, and he's very sensitive, and when you move off the mark a drop, you get it, and you straighten down, and you put back on your trolley tracks, and that's it. But how do we know that if a person would be allowed to develop and to do everything which is in his creative ability to do, that after he's accomplished it all, that God could also intervene and, and, and show his exclusiveness and his oneness even in my most powerful state of being? 
How does that reveal itself? It reveals itself that God says but the following thing. God says, I will let you become as powerful as you want. I will let you do whatever you want. And then I will show you that in spite of letting you become as powerful and as entrenched as you are, you have no guarantees. You have no control because God is ultimately in control of every possible thing that you might have developed and strengthened to that point. So it's, it's one of these things that is somewhat of a paradox and definitely demands a tremendous amount of patience and even more faith. That is, to believe that God can let a situation get worse and worse and worse because ultimately it will bounce back to the extent that it got that bad. In other words, the idea being that God will let something go to an extreme because when God finally does show the, the, uh, the difference between that and himself, there will be even more to be learnt by that bouncing back to the, ex to the extent that it went to one extreme, now it'll go to the other extreme. Now, this all sounds very abstract. I'd like to give an example of this. I'll give two examples of them. One a historical example, and one a personal example, one that we can all relate to. All right? Let's give two examples of this in order to validate or to make this a little bit more reasonable in our own minds. And then I'll take a couple of questions on this because this is a little bit of a difficult concept to understand. To put the concept into a nutshell, once again, is ultimate intensification for ultimate nullification. That is, that's what it really boils down to. Now, which leads to ultimate gr grasping ultimately the uniqueness and the exclusiveness of God above all. Now, this might rub a couple of people here the wrong way, this exclusiveness thing. This is something that we dealt with in uh, DT 13, 14, 15, and 16. So those are tape numbers. So if the word exclusiveness is turning you off, you have to have a little patience and borrow a tape later. But let me give you two examples of, of the negative, of, 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 uh, of a negative lifestyle, a negative power, anything of that. I'm going to give you two examples of this. Let me give you two examples. One of them I think I shared with you. The other one is obvious, but until we talk about it, it's not that clear. <coughs> in the Haggadah, in the Haggadah, there's a part of the Haggadah in which we sing the praises of God and we say, God, we thank you because you were, were very careful to take us out at exactly the right moment. Literally at exactly the right moment. The words for this in Hebrew, just in case you want to relate it to your Haggadah, is Chishev es Lasos. You figured out the end of the exile to the nth degree, to the last possible second, and then you took us out and thank you. So the commentaries explain what is this supposed to mean. What this is supposed to mean is that the Jew could have fallen up to and including 50 levels of, negative, of negativity spiritual negativity. Fifty. And how many did the Jew fall? The Jew fell into 49, and just before he was about to fall into the 50th, God yanked him out of Egypt. In the last second, close call, in the last second, one second more, it would have been too late. Now, what it means that if he would have been there one more moment, it would have been too late, is a discussion for itself. But I'm not going to get into that. We discussed this in our Pesach class. But <clears throat> to, 
stand and praise God and say to God, you let us stay there till we were, if we would have stayed one second longer, we would have fallen into 50, the point of quote-unquote no return. A big thank you God deserves. He couldn't have taken us out at number 24 level or number 22 level or number 10. He let us stay there through 49. Thank you very much. Why don't you take me out earlier? And the answer is a very simple answer. The answer is that on two levels. Firstly, on the personal level, by allowing us to make the choices and to be subjugated to 49 levels and then seeing that it's possible to even be extracted from 49 levels of negativity, that makes a tremendous contribution for the Jew of that time and for Jews of all generations. For were the Jew, for instance, to be taken out, let's say as an example, after 24 drops instead of 49, only 24. So then the Jew for all times would be able to contend with spiritual falls of up to 24 levels. What would happen if the Jew would fall into 25 or 26 or 27 or 28? Tough luck. There's no spiritual precedent to take you out of any more than 24. But being that God allowed the Jew to be exposed and to even through his choice fall into the literally to the bottom of the barrel and then God extricated the Jew from the situation, it means that we know one thing, that no matter how low we fall spiritually in terms of negative, being caught up and controlled by negative things, we have a way of going out. The spiritual precedent has been created. It has been brought into the world. Man has experienced that, that precedent of spiritual extraction from the pits. That has been accomplished. And once that has been accomplished, it can be redone. It's just a question of history repeating itself with man lining himself up to want that extrication. So therefore, yes, we turn to God and we say to God, it would have been better if we wouldn't have fallen at all. But once we were falling, that you didn't intervene at level 24 and you let, allowed us to make choices till 49, we are thankful for your not intervening. Because for you're not intervening up to the, to the bottom most level and then intervening, you taught us something. You told us that we have the ability of being extracted from the lowest possible level. Not only from 24, but even from 49, you can take us out. Now, there are two things that are being told to us by that. The first thing that's being told to us by that is that God has power the spiritual ability and the spiritual power and he has vested us with the power of being able to overcome any situation of Ra, any situation that's negative. We have the ability, maybe not overnight, maybe not in a month's time, it could be a life endeavor to be able to overcome it. But to assume that we are dealing with inconquerable negatives, this is one thing that it's telling us. There is nothing that is incomparable to the neshama, to the soul of man. There is nothing that's inconquerable. Why? Because the soul of man is a chunk of God's essence and there is nothing that conquers God. If there is nothing that conquers God, there is nothing that conquers man. Now, there are two messages in that. First of all, that teaches me the exclusiveness of my neshama, of my soul, that no matter what the level is, I have a way of pulling myself out, but my neshama is what it is because God is what God is. So the exclusive, the ability to be able to pull out, out of the literally the lowest levels teaches me the uniqueness of taiv, the uniqueness of the positive and the wholesome and the full 
over the negative situation. Sooner or later, it has to come out on top. Sooner or later, it has to be the victor, not the, not the victim. It has to be the victor. And that teaches me the exclusiveness, the oneness of God, as powerful as Egypt was, and as powerful as the culture was, and as powerful as the inclination and, the, and all of the desires and lusts of Egypt were. And they totally wrapped up the Jew one more minute and he would have been all completely in, in never never land never to return to any reality spiritually and God was able to overcome that too God was able to overcome it was able to conquer it and he instilled within us the God the neshama that's within us to be able to conquer it so it tells us two things it tells us the exclusiveness of God the oneness of God that no matter how powerful a force is and how powerful a negative force is God is more powerful and everything that God stands for is more powerful and ultimately has to be the victor so that's a lesson in the exclusiveness and the oneness but it's also a lesson vis-a-vis -vis myself that I also possess that exclusiveness that oneness of nature and there is a reference you think that I'm, I'm, all of a sudden God is one now I'm making the neshama one with God my license to do that is in scripture because it says very clearly in scripture that God is called levade all by himself and the scripture says that Yaakov, Jacob and his descendants are also described as having the spiritual ability of levado, all by themselves. What does that mean, all by yourself? That's the ability of that exclusiveness, that there is nothing that cannot be conquered in one's tr uh, ventures to higher levels of fulfillment. There is nothing that the person, there's nothing negative that a person can say, I can deal with this, but not with this. This controls me. It's, it's not necessarily overnight. And there are processes, and it has to be analyzed. Where do you start? Step one, step two. But the notion that the negativity is a reality that is inconquerable is opposite the concept of God's exclusiveness, his oneness. Now, that is the biblical example. That's a perfect example of how God did not intervene, stood back, did not intervene for the purposes of ultimately making it better. By not intervening and letting the Jew the option of falling to the 49th level, allowing him the option, not the guarantee that he's going to fall. God would have preferred that we wouldn't make the choices to fall. But by standing back and not intervening and letting it take its course, the end result is that we have a greater spiritual extraction, the, a greater spiritual ab ability for freedom that lasts meaningfully through all times. So that's a perfect example of holding back intervention for the ultimate good that will come at the end when God does in fact intervene at the last moment. That's the biblical example. Let me give a personal example and after giving the personal example I'll open up for questions if this is disturbing and then we'll go on to the next thing. <laughs> the personal example is the example yes, the example of the Baal Tshuva. Now let me explain. The Gemara says in Yuma the Gemara says in the tractate Yuma that that where the Balchuva stands after he's corrected his way, the tzaddik that never did anything wrong, the righteous person from the start, can't stand in the same place. Why? Because the Balchuva stands all by himself in a, a much higher place. This is a comment that the Gemara makes. Now, on a literal level, 
On the simplest level, what this means is that being that this person tasted the world and tasted all of the different things, for him to have to overcome the world that he tasted is more difficult than another person that doesn't even know what it tastes like. You know the expression, try it and you'll like it. There's a big truth to that. Try it and you'll like it, and then you'll have a heck of a problem trying to get away from it. Because once you try it and you like it, it's difficult to get away from. So therefore, the literal translation is that the Balchuva, who has tried it and has liked it, no matter where he stands now, but the fact that he was exposed to it, he allowed himself to be exposed to it, he did taste it, he had an involvement with with it, he was wrapped up in it, all of that being true, all of that being true, it's very difficult. He has a different kind of a test when the same situation arises and he has to fight himself and say that even though I was involved, I'm going to try to hold back. It's, it's difficult. And therefore, if he does overcome, he is displaying a discipline and a self-control unparalleled by the tzaddik who never tried it. This is the literal translation and worth a lot unto itself, the literal translation. But really, it goes one step further. The truth of the matter is that it goes one step further. And what it means on the deeper level is the following. means the following. That the Balchuva that has gone through the gamut and has tasted all of the things, believed in them, rooted for them, been involved for them, thrown energy, time, and resources towards it, and has come out of it still unfulfilled and even disillusioned, when he then approaches Yiddishkeit and finds something more meaningful in his Judaism, his distance from the negative is much, much deeper. Why? Because he has one thing under his belt. I tried it. I know what it is. It's not going to make me happy. It's not going to make me fulfilled. Very often it's going to make me feel lousy about myself. And I am more distant from it than the person that never tried it. Because the person that never tried it can have all kinds of fantasies, all kinds of dreams of what it's like. And until you do it, who knows? Maybe I'm missing out on a major chunk of the world. While on the other hand, the person who had made that choice, wrong as it was, of the exposure to everything that I thought was wonderful and has come around to realizing that I'm still not happy, I'm still not fulfilled, I I feel in the dumps a minute after I did it and then I can't reconcile my own image to myself after I do it, in a certain sense, when he now approaches Judaism, he approaches Judaism as, as a lifeline because there has been nothing else that has worked. And then there's a comparison that the, the Balchuva makes that is a comparison that comes out of the strength of experience that exceeds the experience of the tzaddik. Now, in that sense, in that sense, the, ne- the uh, God allowing the person all of the choices that he wanted to before he became the Balchuva now stands him in good stead. Today, every single negative thing that he did before becomes a positive. Because every negative thing that he did up to this point, now if he puts it into perspective, he knows that's not. And it gives me more, it propels me more in the direction of what is. So it comes out that God allowing the person every option in the world before he does tshuva will work to his benefit as long as he doesn't do tshuva, he's down there in the pits. 
He's really suffering. He's really going through the worst. But in retrospect, after he does tshuva, the fact that he was involved in every kind of an experience and learned that every kind of an experience is not a ray of hope that I didn't yet try, but it's something that I tried and it, the answer is not there either, it comes out that every Avera becomes a mitzvah. Because every Avera becomes a, a push in a positive direction. The Avera itself, the negative behavior itself, now becomes an instrument of my growth. And the Gemara says that when a person reaches that level of recognition, when he does tshuva, his mitzvahs don't, his averis don't become neutral and unpunishable, but, but they become mitzvahs. Because he's now taken the averis and he's used every experience that he's been exposed to and, and utilizing it in a positive way. That is on a personal level, that is on a personal level something that we can learn from God not intervening. When God doesn't intervene and does and lets me do everything that I want to do, yes, as long as He's letting me do it and I'm doing the wrong things instead of the right things, it seems that the whole system is bankrupt. But it's not bankrupt because the ultimate commitment that God has is the process of free will. And in the ultimate process of free will, while man is responsible for the choices that he makes in his free will system, in the end, by the fact that God allows man to make his choices, if he ever gets to making the right choices, every wrong choice is part of the lesson towards the right choice. And therefore, God's not intervening is very good. Take, for instance, a person that um, tried every single thing in the world except one. One thing he didn't. It didn't work out. He didn't have the opportunity. And then somebody found him and started talking to him and he became a Balchuva. Somewhere after he becomes a Balchuva, he might have the suspicion that, hey, you know, this is all nice and I feel better now than I did before and I'm moving in a certain direction. But, you know, come to think of it, there was one thing that I never tried. There was one thing I never tried. I, didn't, I wasn't broad-minded enough. There was one thing out of all of the Mishigasim that I still didn't try. How do I know that I haven't missed out on something? Right? There is always that thought. It doesn't come at high moments in a person's life. It doesn't come at moments when a person f feels happy. But, when a per but all of life, even when we're going, uh, going in positive directions, we have ups and downs. And how much junk gets thrown into our heads and in our hearts when we're on a down? Maybe this whole thing is nuts. Maybe this is another kick. Maybe there's no meaning to this. Uh, we all suffer from these things on different levels. Right? Subtly, not subtly, consciously, not consciously, admittedly or not admittedly. We all have this, this may, but maybe. Maybe it would have been different. And therefore, God's ruling out every maybe and giving the person at least the option of every possibility is one of those paths which is a very long path and sometimes a very arduous path and a painful path but a path through which the person learns. The fact that I had that choice and I went through that choice is the way. Now, what I'm going to leave, with, leave, leave you with before we enter the next paragraph and take questions is a question. I'm taking that, that, that privilege today. Everything that I said up to this point seems to have one problem with it. 
is this the only way that man can learn? You know, I'm, I seem to be building up and I seem to be glorifying the person that runs into every choice because after he runs into every choice, he sure knows everything and then he comes with, uh, with uh, a portfolio of experience into the right choice. So it almost sounds like, and believe me, this question has been thrown at me. Don't, um, maybe one of you will throw it at me. Maybe I'm trying to just jump at the question. Rabbi, so what if the Baal stands on a higher level than the Tzaddik? What's wrong with going ahead and doing all of the Averis in the book to become the Baal I want to have that mileage. I want, it pays to be a Baal so I'll go. And I'll do all of the Averis. Now, this, it, it sounds nonsense. It sounds illogical, right? But what's wrong with the argument? Honestly, what's wrong with the argument? I should do everything wrong, get a taste of everything, then learn my way back to the right thing, and then I will have under my belt what the Tzaddik doesn't have under his. Why not? Why not? All right. So that's the question that I will leave with you with. You can take the option of answering that or not answering that, but personally speaking, I would prefer hearing your questions first. Yeah. Um, I think I may have one answer, which is that you can say to yourself that I want to try this, you know, and this sounds interesting, and this sounds like it will feed into my negative impulse, but unless it's really coming from you, each person still has their own individual negative impulses, and you can say, I want to try 49 different things, but if it still doesn't feel like you, you're not going to do it anyway. So it's kind of like you're fooling yourself by saying, if you want to try all the negative things, and then you'll be Baal But you can't really force it upon yourself. It really, you really find yourself drawn to your own particular shtick. <laughs> okay, that's a valid answer. It's not the only answer, but it's, it's, it's an extremely valid answer that we have virtually no guarantees that when we begin along that process, of learning that we will ever be able to extricate ourselves from that process. There are no guarantees. We, by, by the fact that we've, we've moved into that kind of a choice, who can guarantee that I will have the sense or the strength or the discipline of character of, of even after I recognize that it's not good, that I will be able to pull myself away? There are many for many different reasons that can have the recognition that something is negative but don't have the strength or just can't put it together to be able to pull themselves out of a negative situation. So it's an awfully dangerous path to take. It's a very dangerous path to take. What we're saying is that if the person made, did buckle under and did make the negative choices, one shouldn't feel that they can never make up after having made the wrong choice. Quite to the contrary. If the wrong choice had to be made, there is what to gain after the choice has been made. But not to, not to uh, suggest making the wrong choice in the first place. This is one particular answer. There are a number of answers as well besides this one. Yes? Um, I have an answer to the question. Okay. The answer to your question, I think, is perhaps that there are certain children that Hashem accepts and certain children that he doesn't accept. Right. Now, if Lokashila, before you do an Avera, you say to yourself, well, I'm going to do an Avera, and then I can do Chuva afterwards, and it'll all be wiped out, 
I think that that's the type of tshuva, in fact, that uh, Hashem. Very good. That's that's a second. That was a, that's a second answer, which I I was hinting that there's more than one answer that. Uh, um, you're alluding to a Gemara. The Gemara says that a person who g- enters into negative behavior on the crutch of tshuva, in other words, I'll do this wrong thing because I always know that I have the exit door called tshuva afterwards, then the Gemara says for that person tshuva becomes very, very difficult. Why? Because tshuva has become the instrument of his avera. Right? The tshuva, in other words, you sinned with the tshuva. In other words, a person sins and he does tshuva to undo this, the wrongdoing. But over here, he, he used the tshuva itself as a sin because he used the tshuva as his way. So, in other words, so the negativity didn't only touch the particular behavior that he did, but it, it infiltrated and it took the potency out of the tshuva because you, you, you sinned in the tshuva because you used the tshuva as a crutch. It doesn't mean that it's impossible, but the Gemara says you ain't going to get no special help from heaven when you use tshuva as a crutch. There's no special help that comes in that situation. That's a very good... It's a similar thing. That has different problems. The person is suffering from other things with that. But that's an excellent second answer. The question. First example you gave, the historical one. Yes. And you said ultimately uh, what that means is that even if we're on the 49th Drago, whatever, that we can pull ourselves out. Something I don't understand. In that example, I don't see where there was real Bechira. I don't see where there was real Chuva. I mean, you're saying. Good. Excellent question. Excellent question. Okay, the standing back uh, to Egypt didn't necessitate us falling into 49 levels of impurity. The fact that we fell into 49 levels of impurity, that has to do that has to do with how we blended and how we interacted with what was going on in Egypt. The fact that God didn't intervene at an earlier time and take us out before we fell to 49 is the parallel that I made. But you asked a very good question before the question about the intervention. You asked an excellent question. You asked a question about what happened in Egypt when we got out of the 49 levels of Tumah was a unilateral action on God's part to extract us. From, from that kind of a situation. It had nothing to do with us. It wasn't a tshuva process that we went through. It was a unilateral action. How do we take the unilateral action of God extracting us from that kind of a situation and apply it to similar situations where we have to do it through choice and bechira? That happens to be an excellent question. It's an excellent question, and let me attempt answering it. It's, an, it's a very good question. <coughs> anybody who would cite for you the exodus from Egypt as an example of tshuva has made a tremendous mistake. It is not correct. Any event up until the giving of Tyra to the Jewish people cannot be a model of tshuva. For the simple reason that up until the giving of Tyra the neshama of the Jewish people wasn't formed 
completely to begin with. What is tshuva? Tshuva is that a person has a neshama and he does certain things that take him out of contact with his neshama. Every Jew has a part of his neshama that no matter what he does remains untouched by what he's done. That is the point of health that then sends out the spiritual white blood cells to, to attack the negative areas. Right? But the phenomena of tshuva works very much like it works in, in, in the medical understanding of it. There is an essential health that the person possesses that can fight back an area that has been infected. But the concept that there is an essential area of health which is unaffected, that has the power to fight back, that is by virtue of the creation of a neshama, which in the language of the philosopher, the maral, is called tsura nivdelis. That it is a tsura, which means that it is a spiritual entity that has no physical form, which is nivdelis. It is so exalted and so high that it has a sense of separateness from anything in this world, like God. There's a separateness to it, that no matter what happens, there's a certain aspect that it remains untouched. And there's a vibrancy of health to the neshama no matter what. And it's from there that it all builds. When did that neshama come to its, to its point of completion? In creation of neshama. That was by Kabbalah Satira. That was by the giving of Tyre. The process of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim and the, everything that ensued up till the giving of Tyre was a process that developed the neshama of the Jewish people. If one would want to look at the first conversion in Chomish, the concept of being gifted with a new neshama, the concept of conversion the first time in Chomish is Kabbalah Satire. The first conversion, and many of the laws of conversion are learned from Kabbalah Satire, from the giving of Tyre. Why? Because the Jews stand around, uh, stood by the mountain of Sinai, heard God saying the Ten Commandments, God-man contact, the Gemara tells us that the neshama of the Jew went out of him because of the tremendous uh, intensity of the spiritual experience and God re-put re it back into the person. But the fact that it went, God could have kept it in. Why did God let it go out and come back in? So the commentaries say what went out is not what went back in. What went back in by the gift of God was a completed nishmas Yisrael that now will have this component, will now have this component that no matter what you do to it, it's indestructible. And therefore, always a guarantee of tshuva is possible. Anything that comes before Yitzhiyas, before Kabbalah Satira, is not an example for tshuva. So what is an example for? What, is, what it is an example for is the ability to be able to separate taif from ra, to be able to separate the good from the bad. Now let me explain what I mean. The ability to separate, and that itself was a process that led to the formulation of the neshama. Let me explain what I mean by that. Very often, you can get <clears throat> a person that will do something that is a mixture of good and bad. It's a good motivation, but it's a lousy activity. It's a good activity, but a lousy motivation. A lot of what we does, do falls into that category. To get something that's pure good is rare. To get something that's purely negative is hopefully also quite rare. But the mixtures, or what I refer to as the spiritual chalents, 
are quite common. Okay? Because even when we do something, for how many reasons are we doing it? There, there are a lot of different reasons. This is referred to Kabbalistically in our literature as Taruvas Taivara. The mixture of Taivara is a greater challenge than any other challenge. Because to do pure Taiv is very, very difficult. All right? to, do, to do pure Ra is also very difficult because we have to rationalize it to ourselves. There has to be something good about it. But the Taruvos, the mixture of good and bad, I dare say that there's tons of garbage in this world that sold itself, not because it was pure garbage, but because it was not pure garbage. There was a little truth to it, a little something right about it. I mean, and that's true across the board. If it's, if it's Hare Krishna, if it's this meditation, if it's that meditation, if, if it's secular Zionism, wh take whatever you want. There's a little bit something right to it. It's the land of Israel. It's because Krishna believes that there's a soul and there's a purpose for soul. Whatever it is, you will find an, uh, a shred of truth or a little bit something that's valuable. And usually what happens is that people ride on those couple of threads of truth and they use it as the connection. And then all of the other garbage piggybacks with that little, little truth that's there. So therefore, one of the most critical processes that was necessary was that the, uh, the ultimately that there can be made a separation of the two and that they are not forever and ever in uh, forever entwined in each other impossible to separate right? and that was the significance of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim the significance of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim yes it was a unilateral action on God's part it was God's intervention. But what God did in Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim was God said that the taruvas of Tovarah, the mixtures of good and bad, that became the experience of the Jew with his neshama in Egypt when it still hadn't been formulated and born completely, that has to end. There has to be a, the, the possibility to drive a wedge between that which is Taiv and that which is Ra has to be put into the very guts of the creation of the neshama. That a neshama can have, in its essence, be nivdelis, be totally separate from all of the other nonsense. And that's what went, what went on there. Because the neshama went through this process, and God, through the process of Egypt, created the, uh, the attribute that the neshama can become what is in the morale's language called nivdelis, that it possesses by its essence a sense of separateness from everything that's that's unfulfilling and negative because it's developed that way this always gives the person the ability to make separations to make differences to make to drive the wedges as it were right were it not to get so deeply involved into 49 levels of impurity we would be able to untwine a certain mess but if it would get terribly entwined, then we wouldn't be able to, to, to undo it. The concept over here is the concept of the intertwining. And that goes into the creation of neshama. It wasn't a one-time act. That's my answer to you. It wasn't a one-time act on God's part. It's, a, it's another stage in the birth of that neshama. Of the, of the whole concept of neshama being separate from everything else in the world and not being all intertwined with the physical. The nivdelis aspect, that separateness aspect. And that 
is is a major distinction in our ability. If it does have a character of nivdeles, if the neshama has the character of separateness and the strength of separateness, so then no matter how entwined a person can get, his neshama will scream, I'm in a place where I don't belong. I'm entwined in something that I'm not supposed to be. There's a sensitivity because it, the neshama was yanked out of that chalent. And it knows that it doesn't belong in a chalent. It belongs separate and strong and independent onto itself. And it has that guts to it. Now, I wanted to just point out to you, most probably, if you're not wondering about it, I certainly wondered about it when I learned it, they only fell to 49. What happens if a Jew falls to 50? What happens if he falls to 50? If God didn't take us out of 50, so then if we fall to 50, we're doomed. The answer to that is wrong. And the answer is what I just said now, because the Jew, the Jew that had to be taken out of 49 and wasn't allowed to go into 50 was the Jew before the birth of his neshama, before the giving of Torah. But the Arachayim says, but after the birth of neshama, through the giving of Torah, a Jew can fall into 50 levels of impurity and he can still extricate himself from that too. Why? Because the Torah creates a power that can take out of 50 as well. So the Jew in Egypt that still had not had Kabbalah Satira, he still didn't go through the experience of Kabbalah Satira, so he could only go to 49. 50 was not possible. But after the giving of Torah, the chemistry between the Torah and that new neshama called Nishmas Yisrael is such a powerful mixture that it can conquer virtually everything. Ein Oid Milvadi. There is nothing else that it ca- except that entity. There is nothing else. There's a oneness to neshama and a oneness to God that share that, that spot, that share that, that limelight. Yeah, that. their free will and let's say um, negative choices to such an extent that the only way uh, for God to show that he's powerful again is that he has to take the soul back in other words it, it's just it's gone beyond the point okay today's okay it's it's an excellent question uh, it's an excellent question it's a troubling question um, we are going to talk about it if it won't come out tomorrow night in the class in the Tamadvar, it will come out next week in the class um, uh, the Tamadvara the uh, Rav Meshach HaDivero points out and we touched upon this if it wasn't last week, it was two weeks ago we pointed out that your observation is, is correct there are certain points in time where God says that it is conceivable that the extraction process will not happen anymore within the context of the choices of this world. That is possible. What Rav Meshachayim says, what Rav Meshachayim says is that God will not let the world as a whole ever get to that point, because that would mean the destruction of the world. But a yachid, an individual, it is conceivable that he might not be able to he might not be able to, or God might deem that his opportunities or his privileges to do so have run out. There is such a there is such a thing. It is an extreme situation, a very extreme situation, but it is a situation. It is a possibility. 
But the point which is very important, which I think I made mention to Michael, I spoke uh, in, in reference to Michael's question last week, was that even though it might not happen here, but it has to happen within the life cycle of the neshama. It might not happen visibly to us within the physical term of existence, the physical term of existence, but in the overall term of existence, the broader term of existence, which is the neshama, the life of the neshama after physical existence, that the Gemara tells us it virtually happens in every single case. The Gemara says that were a person able to find the openings to Gehenim, the openings to the place where spiritual purification comes, he would hear the following song, Yafa Dante, Yafa Zachisa, Yafa Chiyafta. How well did you judge and how well did you see the ones that were right and the ones that were wrong? And who sings that song? Not the tzaddikim. The tzaddikim are not there. It's the people that have gone through the spiritual purity that eventually come to the point of their neshamas also speaking that praise, speaking that manifestation of God that their neshamas has come in contact with. So the inevitability of the neshama recognizing the, the truth and the right and the, is inevitable. Does it happen always within physical? No, it doesn't. What are the determining factors at which point Hashem says you've got enough? You've had enough chances? You've had enough privileges? The answer to that, in the words of Maimonides, more coarsely said by Yitzhak Kersma is, it is not for man to try to figure that out. It's, that's the Eivishtas Cheshbainis, those are the Rebbeinu Shalom's Cheshbainis, they are his calculations. For us it's to know that every moment of life means a challenge and means an opportunity. And nobody should ever pass judgment upon themselves at any point in time that I'm, I'm lost already. God gave up on me. Or I gave up on myself. That's not true. By virtue of the fact that I still exist, I have the right to assume that I'm here for a reason. I have the right to assume that I can still grow. I have the right to assume that I, kill, I can still be part of an ultimate plan to, to connect with God by the very fact that oxygen is going through my nostrils. Yeah, one more question, and then I want to try to go a little bit ahead. Sometimes you use the term man, and sometimes you use the term Jew. I'm just wondering, when you say man, you mean Jew and not Jew? We're going ahead. <laughs> All right, let me deal with that at the end. What? Let me deal with that at the end, okay? I'm not trying to avoid it, but the, the, the next paragraph is a little bit more important, yeah? And could yeah. Could you give us a historical example where Shimon waited Is there any situation where God intervenes earlier? Yeah, I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. I don't know what you want this for, but I'll give you an example. Um, God taking a person out of the world before he spoils his record. Chanoch. Okay? Chanoch was a righteous person. He was really moving very nicely along. Okay? And God foresaw that he would have particular challenges that would ruin 
numerous accomplishments that he had made. And therefore God terminated his life in terms of the physical life and the physical challenges earlier than was originally intended. Or for that matter, the Ben Sararumora. Right? The Ben Sararumora, where the, uh, the person is going along a bad road and God says one thing is going to... Right now he's stealing meat. Or he's stealing money to eat meat and drink wine, which is uh, symbolic of being caught up in materialism. And if the habit will go further and further, he will kill for it and he will do other things for it and the end will be that he will be a person that will be a murderer. There are, under certain circumstances, and they're very, very specific ones, uh, not every kid that comes home and takes money out of the mom's pocketbook to buy some food falls into this category, where the Gemara says, Yom val Yom let the person die when he's still meritorious and not die when he's totally, totally guilty. There is such a concept. Now, those two would be examples of God intervening before a person falls to, to, to a much lower level. So the concept does exist where God intervenes before a certain point in time. Right? The concept does exist. But all in all, on the normal, those are exceptions. The rule is that the commitment to the free will process, which God deems to be the one that in the end, not necessarily along the road, but in the end will produce the greatest results, that is the process that God usually works with, which makes the allowance for a lot of negative things to go, to go on. All right, I'm really not trying to avoid the other question, but I'd like to at least make a dent into the next paragraph. We were supposed to start it two weeks ago. All right, so let's just start the next paragraph. The question that I asked was, is that the only way to learn? I asked it a little bit more brazenly, and I said, let everybody go out and do Averis so we should become Balei Tshuva. Okay? So is that the only way? Okay. So the Rav Moshe is going to address that question, not necessarily the brazen question, but the question, is that the only way to learn? And let's see the new paragraph. Kihain MS, we'll only go a little bit if, if, it's, uh, if you're reaching bedtime. Kihain MS, I want you to know, Rav Meshachayim Litzata says, that man could really have reached this level of understanding God's exclusiveness and oneness and embrace it totally, and recognize the truth for what it is even without this whole long, arduous and painful path. It is possible. But what it would require would be that man would make some dedication and some sacrifice in giving up some of the falseness of this world in order to be able to appreciate it. I'll explain in a moment. How could man reach everything in a shorter path, in a less arduous and painful path, if man would be able to grapple with the idea, and I'm going to say it very point blank, as Rav Meshachayim Lutzata says, that anything that is opposite of what God wants is automatically wrong and negative. Now, I don't know if we always think like that. <laughs> right? God is, has his opinion, I've got my opinion, 
God is spiritually oriented, I'm not on the same wavelength, so what's right for God is not necessarily right for me. Come on, let's get all that junk out. Uh, we, we, have to, we think like that consciously or subconsciously, but the clarity of knowing that if it's opposite of what Hashem wants, there's no good that can come from it. It's virtually impossible that anything good can come from it. And that you know that on all levels, intellectually, emotionally, on all levels, that you really feel it. If a person would have that kind of uh, premise to life, that would be fine. Now, how a person gets to that is no simple task. One way that we get to it is by not believing it and being stubborn and then learning slowly through experience. The other way of learning it is through faith, through trust. And we're not going to go into it at great length now, but what Rav Chaim Lutzata explains, what Rav Chaim Lutzata explains is that first man, Adam Harishan, that was his ultimate test. His ultimate test was that he was presented with what was his challenge when he was born. The challenge that he was presented with was to know this with an unequivocal clarity. That if it's opposite of what God said, it can't lead to any good thing. Now, Adam Arishan didn't buy into that. Because Adam Arishan figured that he could eat from the tree that he was instructed not to, and everything would be fine in the end. That meant that you can do something outside of the parameters that have been defined by God, and nisht gefalech. I'll get to the finish point. Maybe not the same way God wants me to get there, but I'll get there. I'll meet him at the finish line. Adam Arishan felt that way. And as long as he felt that way, he immediately established that, okay, now you're going to have to learn through experience. You'll fall. You'll realize that you made a terrible mistake in falling, and now you're going to have to make up the extent that you fell. Now let's read it inside. I'm going to try to read it literally, and then we'll try to just develop it a little bit tonight, and then we'll continue next week on this. <clears throat> if the Jew would believe in this premise, he would accept this premise, that what? That if it's opposite of God, in the long or short, it can't lead to anything good, God, man would, by sticking to this premise and this formula in the choices that he would make, would come to realize the exclusiveness and oneness of God. Because if he would accept this premise and therefore only, only behave within the context of this premise, and he would only behave in this context, he would come to not only have to take it on trust, but he would slowly come to experience the truth of the remark. When he would start on the premise, he wouldn't necessarily appreciate it. Why? Why can't I think? Why can't I have an opinion? Why can't I select the path? That's how we start. And Adam Arishan, first man, as Lozado is going to explain in the next paragraph, also started that way. So when we start, we wrangle with this concept. We don't want to accept this concept. But if we buckle... If we buckle up and we say, I don't appreciate it and I don't believe it and I can't deal with it, but I am going to work within the, that framework 
and I will not try I will try not to deviate from that framework the behavior that will ensue will be one that will experientially deepen my appreciation of the premise while I'm standing outside and I still don't know the value of that path or any other path correctly it's very hard to believe in something when you're outside of it very difficult if I'm not in it and I'm outside of it it could be the most glorious thing in the world I won't believe in it this is why first man after he was created God had to persuade him to go into paradise I don't think there's anybody in this room that would have to be persuaded to go into paradise but Adam Arishan had to be persuaded and the answer to that is that as long as a person is standing outside of it it can be paradise it doesn't matter as long as I'm outside of it there's a certain lack of contact with it that makes it somewhat unbelievable implausible because I'm outside of it I'm not in contact with it yet okay and so how do I get from point A to point B I'm outside of it I'm not in contact with it yet Okay, and I have to work within that behavioral format. How do I get there? I'm outside of it. I can't believe in it yet. That is where the leap of faith comes to play. To get me from where I am in reality to the where I can experientially then understand and really believe and really feel there is one bridge that goes from one place to the other and only one. And that's the bridge of faith. To be able to move ahead on a provisional basis accepting the concept so to speak as a working formula not as one that I accept on all levels yet but as a working formula to move ahead if I do that for many many reasons which we'll get into next week it begins to work and it begins to give a person at least a contact with that that reality and experience it somewhat and then one can backtrack to where they are and all of a sudden it now does begin to make sense and it now does begin to have reason. And anybody that has grown spiritually knows that this is true. Let's go a little bit further. <coughs> Let's finish up the paragraph. <laughs> we wouldn't have to learn through the difficulties and the length of exile. Because once we would come to this truth, that's enough. Exile is not, no, uh, no particular program that God bought into and he can't come, go out of that contract. What God ultimately wants from all of the different programs that he puts us through is that we should arrive at emes. We should arrive at truth. If I can get to truth without that arduous path, blessed be you. Very good. And God is delighted. God doesn't say you must. It's not like you, you gain membership in the fraternity if, if you balance a dozen eggs on your head. You have to do that in order to prove something. <coughs> There's nothing to prove. You have to reach a level of truth, that's all. And if you can reach the level of truth through another manner, that's fine. Kivan is barren is barren. Once it's clear, it's clear. Kivan shikfaro haravi kiru. Once man recognizes what negativity is, and he's prepared to leave go of it and he holds on to that which he knows to be the truth about the exclusive nature of God that which was, had to be done was done the whole intention was that this should become clear so that from that point and further they should have tremendous pleasure in the truth that they found 
And that's what God wants us to have. The pleasure of finding out the truth and living in the truth. In Kenkish and Isgalan, Isgalan, once I reach that point of truth and I'm basking in the pleasure of that truth, I know that what I'm doing is right and correct and truthful. Finished. Halaisiri Adamarishan. This is the story of Adamarishan. Kach Karalai. And this is what happened to Adamarishan. Now we're going to stop here. I just want to go back and point out one thing, and then I'll take questions if there are questions, and we'll get more deeply involved in this concept of the faith being the bridge between where I am and where I'm supposed to be going. We'll deal with this next week in all of its detail. I just want to go back to one thing. Ramon Shechaim Lassata said that the process of exile and the pain of exile and all of that is really not necessary. It's all for the intention of finally arriving at truth. If a man can arrive at the, the truth without it, that's fine. And God is satisfied with that. Now, God is satisfied with that because that makes man happy. That will make man fulfilled, finding that truth. Until a person finds that truth, there is a certain inner restlessness that can be dulled with many different things in life, but that inner peace that inner happiness is not there. And God is committed to man finding it. You're stubborn, you don't want to take, take it on faith, fine, you'll find it another way, but I'm committed that you're going to find it one way or the other. That's God's commitment to man, his, his unfledging commitment to man finding that truth, not because I'm God, but because I want that you should find that inner happiness, that inner fulfillment. But let's go back to one thing that Rav Meshachayim Lutzata said that we went, whoo, we skipped right over it. And it happens to be very, very important. We went wet, wet, straight over it. And that is, and I pointed this out, if I'm not mistaken, I pointed this out in a class in Long Island. So those of you that are here from Long Island, please excuse me. What does Rav Meshachayim Lutzata say? If a person can live, with the sense that that which, is, what, that which God told me is good and positive and will be fulfilling and that which God told me not to do, no matter which way I turn with it, it's not going to lead to anything good, right? That is the formula that we have to eventually arrive to. We're not there, we're certainly not there, but that's where we're headed. We're headed in that direction, either through our choices or God's different tamperings with history. But that's the direction that we're headed in. Now, but Rav Meshachayim Lutzata says that even if I live with that belief, it's not enough. If you go back on the first lines of Rav Meshachayim Lutzata of this paragraph, he throws in one more thing. He writes, he says that they recognize this truth, the very first line of this paragraph. If people would be meritorious by their actions and they would recognize this truth, and what does he say right afterwards? And they leave the fourth path of this world because they want to come close to God. Now let me explain what that means because there's a tremendous wealth of information in those words. Rav Meshachayim Lutzat is say, saying the following thing. Very often a person can live oh I think I mentioned it here. A person can live with uh, a tremendous desire for good, for wanting to be spiritual, for wanting to come close to God, for wanting to face the truth on, on very deep levels and on very sincere levels. But when you'll tell the person that in order to get there, 
you have to relinquish your hold on a particular habit or a particular thing that you're caught up in that is by its spirit or by its behavior opposite of that spiritual stature all of a sudden you see somebody walking out the door he's not there anymore this has happened many times and it's I try not to make it happen often but very often when people get to a certain point in terms of sincerity and growth and truth there does come a time of reckoning and one has to say okay now that you know so much and you recognize so much and you understand so much and you've been inspired so much what can you do to back up how much you've grown intellectually what are you going to do I think that you should give this up or I think that you should begin doing this unfortunately sometimes those were the last times that I saw people ultimately I believe that the, they're gonna, they will come back and they will make decisions later because they're touched in different ways but the truth of the matter is that Chachma the wisdom and the truth cannot live forever and ever in an inconsistent lifestyle see if you're just dealing with tr with with uh, a science a history a geography course mathematics right so then you can be one person and have the knowledge but when you're dealing with something that whose ultimate vibrancy is because it's truth there's only up to a certain point that I can live opposite of that truth and that that should really still blend with me and that it should still be part of me there comes a point in time that if everything that I do is inconsistent with quote untruth not the wisdom that I know but the truth that I know so then it's not true for me anymore because if I live one way but know another way so sooner or later you dull the sense of truth that you have or the appreciation of truth that you have and you lose grasp of it if you got the grasp to begin with right? so this is what Rav Moshe Chaim Litzata says Rav Moshe Chaim Litzata says we're dealing with tackling truth we have to realize that to tackle with truth we have to be willing to give up certain things in order to to get to it we certainly have to be willing to let go of things once we've gotten to that truth right? and if we're not willing to give it up we are defining for ourselves the limitation of our growth God is not limiting our growth but we're imposing a limitation to our growth at that particular point we have to tackle with it and that's why Rav Moshe Chaim Litzata says I want to give it up now I want to point out something else here which is beautiful and very very helpful let's say I happen to be involved in something which is I enjoy tremendously right? but it doesn't lead me in any positive direction it's not, the, it's not this truth that we're talking about and it's very hard for me to give it up How, what do I do in order to be able to give it up it's easy to say give it up but what do you do so Rav Moshe Chaim says that a person has to ask himself a question which he anyway asks himself every day of his life can I have everything in life no okay unless we're very immature and childish we know that we can't have everything so how do we decide what we want and what we don't want what's more important and what's less important what are the priorities and what are not and there are trade-offs that are made every day of our lives a person that tells you that he has everything and he hasn't traded anything off 
is either very unknowledgeable or a big fat liar. It's not true. All of life is trade-offs of things against other things. Now, when we make trade-offs, we have to decide what is, what's worth what. In other words, I will give up this in order to be able to get that. I mean, let's not be, let's be very down to earth. You know, when you walk into a store, you're also making a trade-off. You've got money in your pocket. You'd like to walk out of the store with the cassette tape recorder with the money. Why not? But you need the cassette tape recorder, the green stuff, as much as my tongue sticks out for it. How much is it worth? I can't eat it for supper. So I make a trade-off. The cassette recorder is worth more to me than the security of having a bulge in my pocket. So I'll give up the money in order to get the tape recorder. All of life is full of trade-offs of one nature or another. We try, if we're good businessmen, to at least get an equal, or hopefully that we get a good buy. Right? But all of life is those trade-offs, and we look for the good buy. So what Ramayshachayim Lutzata says is that the person has to ask himself the following question. has to ask himself the following question. I am being asked to give up something from the material world which is not good for my spiritual growth. I have to be able to ask myself the question, is spiritual growth important to me? Why is spiritual growth important to me? What will I gain from spiritual growth? Can I close my eyes and imagine how I will feel with this new level of spiritual growth and compare it to the pleasure of this particular thing? In other words, I have to be at the point in time to be able to say, or at least have the hunch, that if I give this up, I'm going to get something equal or better. The notion that people go and grow in Judaism, and they're going to be heroes that are going to kill themselves to be Jewish, don't grow. It doesn't work that way. The realistic way of growing in Yiddishkeit is because I know that I'm giving something up for something that is as valuable, if not more valuable. Now, as I grow in Yiddishkeit, I come to realize the differences and the choices. But the idea is a very important idea. Somebody once told me, and this is very true, by the way, with children, as it's true with adults. You can't go over to a child and tell a child, what you're doing is no good, I'm taking it away from you, and give the child nothing else in its, in its stead. You have to be able to develop in the child a sense and an appreciation for something of a different nature, and then slowly wean the child away from the lower level thing. In other words, you want to get a child to do a mitzvah, you want to get him to do the mitzvah? You want him to have a real philosophical Lozado interpretation of the mitzvah? And he's a poor seven-year-old kid. What do you want from him? And you want him to study it and spend a half hour instead of playing with the kids outside. You're not going to accomplish anything. The only thing that you can do is that you can, you can give him enticements in order to get involved in the mitzvah. You can make trade-offs with him that he can appreciate to get him into the mitzvah. And then once he's in the mitzvah and he's more mature and he begins to understand the mitzvah, then you don't have to give him the candy to do the mitzvah either. This is a very acceptable uh, program. Maimonides, the great philosopher, Maimonides talks about the intricacy of how much candy to give a kid in order to be able to give him the transference into mitzvahs until he can appreciate the mitzvah and then be willing to relinquish something else that before he wouldn't be able to relinquish. 
this process is a process for children, but it's a process for adults too. In Pirkei Ovis it says, having Mechashev, Hepsid Mitzvah, Kenegat Schara, Schara Ver, Kenegat Hepsida. In Pirkei Ovis it also says we have to measure the value, the reward of the Mitzvah, the loss of the Mitzvah, the reward of the Avera, the loss of the Avera. This is, there's no unrealistic expectations. And therefore, sometimes before we're ready to let go of something that is dear to us, we have to be able to develop an appreciation of things which are more positive, and that will give us the strength. How many times I heard that people that were tackling with all kinds of different habits and different things that were really, really difficult, and they just could not manage them, and then they were able to dedicate uh, or focus on something positive and really give it all they've got, and all of a sudden the problem disappears, or is a lot less. I didn't even think about it. I ha- now I have something else which is more important and more fulfilling, and the other thing is not uh, it's almost not a sacrifice to let go of. This is an attitude which is critical in Judaism. We should never approach growth in Judaism thinking that we're giving up everything and getting nothing except a clear conscience in return. Right? If that's the way we think, we won't grow. The reality is that a person has to realize that at the end of the process of Judaism, he will be left with more than when he started with everything else that he had. In Yiddishkeit, ultimately, one finds everything. Does that mean that that's the ultimate motivation? No, not necessarily. Looking for everything for myself? No, I'm not saying that it's the ultimate motivation. But the notion that Judaism is poverty-stricken with pleasure and the world is where all of the pleasure is, is a false notion. It's not a true notion. And therefore, when we approach, we have to approach with this way. Yes, give up, but give up when we have something else valuable in our hands as a trade-off for it. I'll take questions. If there are those of you that want to go home, feel free to go home at any point. I'm not insulted, and the people that ask questions aren't either. <coughs> yeah. Uh, I would just like to, uh, to make a, a comment in answer to something you raised before about the Baal Shuba. If, um, if one would think, I'm going to go out there and try everything and have a good time, and then return to Judaism where I'm going to suffer. You know, I'm, I'm good. all of these things I'm going to have a great time. And then, then I'll do tshuva or, or constrict my life. Uh, speaking as a Baal Shuva, that, that really is never the thinking. Unfortunately, I, I think what one thinks is, why did I have to be so old before I found, you, you know, why has it taken me so long? Because what happens very often, I think, for most people is that probably it's from ignorance or a lack of knowing which way to go, and you, you try different things and you think that you're doing all right, but there's always something lacking, and um, there's, there's a feeling of um, an emptiness and not being able, perhaps, to, to cope with a lot of things. And if somebody had said to me uh, a year ago, more than a year ago, that you really should go to shul every Shabbos, you should keep the Shabbos, you shouldn't work anymore on Shabbos, and you must keep kosher, I, I would just look, and you'll be very happy, and this is the right thing to do. Um, this would not have been anything within the realm of, of my thinking. 
but I do think that when one starts someplace, as you've said, you suddenly find that you're lighting candles, you're beginning to keep the sh